welcome back to MFA Writers. It's the beginning of December already, and that means MFA application deadlines are here. For all of you who are applying to programs this cycle, I know this can be an anxiety-inducing point in the process. But I hope you also see it as a moment for celebration. A lot of hard work got you to this moment, and soon, it'll all be out of your hands. So take a deep breath, hit submit, and then give yourself a pat on the back. You deserve it. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Matt Farley. Matt is a queer poet, activist, and multimedia artist from Ohio. He's currently pursuing his MFA from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. His work explores liminality, queer identity, family, and shame. His work has recently been published in the anthology SOS Art Cincinnati Presents, Poems and Drawings Inspired by Social Justice. Today, Matt has brought some poetry to read for us. This first piece is called Two Cardinals. Here we go. One decomposing log, an orchestra of spores, one pair of goodwill shoes caked in mud. For some reason, I always find myself making decisions like this. In the mud, I thought that once I became an adult, I would know what the right thing to wear would be in every situation. One shiny tree. Is that glitter on the tree? Two rabbit holes in the ground. One disco tree in the middle of the park. It seems out of place. Two shady spots where the ground is covered in frost. One dog not on leash. The tree is too fabulous. One rabbit skull picked bleach white. I scream at the tree. Hey, disco tree, get out of here. Didn't you hear about the bill those psychos passed in Florida? Two dogs and one man with a nice butt wearing mud boots walking in front of me. One turkey vulture. It's not safe. But then I remember trees don't have ears. One shadow, one cigarette butt. It was the year I was broke. I picked cigarette butts off the ground and smoked them. I guess it's my shadow. 21 ice puddles that are 21 worlds. What I mean is that I am my shadow. Is Beyonce's new album a disco album? I'm not sure. Once I was in the car with my mom and she hit a bird and killed it. My daughter is a week old today. 21 window panes. My shadow is me. She pulled off to the side of the road and started sobbing, then praying. 20 more puffs in my inhaler. One memorial labyrinth that promotes gratitude. 
one year of sobriety. She told me she couldn't imagine if any of her kids were gay. Ten geese trespassing into the private pond against the wishes of the HOA. I'm grateful for geese noncompliance. One helicopter that looks like a blackbird. I still have the scar from when I pushed my arm through the window pane. Her eyes were searching for something in mine. Turned on thinking about the 20-something with the nice legs. I usually like hairier dudes. One hill perfect for rolling down. Hairier dudes like the hairy-armed French cafe owner. Five artificial pale pink roses standing at attention in memory of a woman who died before she turned 60. One plaque which instructs us to let her memory inspire us in everything we do. The plaque reminds me that I need to buy oat milk if I want to eat cereal in the morning and get cat food. Harrier dudes like Hugh Jackman, Wolverine in the first X-Men movie. One profusion flowering crab apple. One call to dad on his 70th birthday. It's been a while. We talk about his cancer. He asked me to send him pictures of the baby. One dandelion. Would I see my shadow? No broken glass to pick up. Would there be a sign? An epiphany? 57 minutes until my therapy appointment. She seems competent enough. Besides, what do I know? This is my first therapist. How do you know if it's a good fit or not? One little free library. One endangered owl seen through a telescope. I want more of a literary balance to exist in the little free library's ecosystem, so I'm doing my part. Three more cars pull into the park. Ten cold fingers. Between two Michael Crichton books, I've left a copy of George Oppen's selected poems. I didn't just wear the wrong shoes. I didn't bring gloves. The moon's outline is peeking over the reedy marshland. Shadows multiplied, reflect off the barely frozen puddles. Two blackbirds circling overhead. And then the second poem is uh, dislocated. Before you were a rabbit, you were the regulatory affairs manager for a mid-sized medical device firm. You sold burrs. You sold the best burrs that were designed by engineering experts. Your burrs cut through the skulls of FDA-approved anatomically appropriate animal models. Awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing those and for being here. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you. So I definitely want to talk about the poetry you read, and we're going to get to that. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about activism and writing, because you told me before the interview that you consider yourself an activist first and a poet second. So I'm curious whether you think writing and specifically creative writing is itself a form of activism. Like, in what ways do you consider yourself an activist? And do you see your activism and writing as separate or one in the same? Yeah, I think they're definitely one in the same. Um, right now, I'm very much invested in identity. But as a poet, I've always been very interested in inequality and working class issues. Um, my poetry allows me to explore issues of gentrification, as well as get into some of those uh, issues that are important to the working class. Poetry has this kind of highfalutin kind of thing going for it. But I feel like as poets, we lose out on our audience potentially. And the people who our message might hit the best are people who might not even like poetry. 
which yeah. is a weird thing to consider. You know, writing from a like queer Appalachian background, I don't see myself uh, represented a lot in contemporary poetry. And so if my little gay poems can, you know, be seen by, you know, one other little queer kid out there and be yeah. like, oh, that's my experience too. Yeah. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. I think we all like as artists, like hope that our art can like change the world. But if you could even change like one kid's perspective or outlook on their future, that's enough, right? How much do you think about your reader when you're writing something? Are you like envisioning someone from like your hometown, like picking up your poem and reading it when you're writing it? Yeah, potentially, you know, somebody from like, like the Rust Belt, you know, like who maybe feels like um, they haven't seen their self represented before in media or in creative writing, maybe on a whim, they'll hear uh, a poem and they'll be like, oh, that's kind of my experience, too. If he can do that, shit, anybody can do that. Yeah. And being able to pick up, pick it up, I guess, and be like, oh, this is actually pretty accessible. This is like in language that I'm used to. I think that's really important for me too. selecting language that is um, easily understood. Uh, You know, we're all as coming from like an MFA background, we all have lots of uh, academic weight behind us. Right. Um, But cutting through that noise and still getting to a message that does resonate um, without the extended vocabulary, I think is I think that's the real alchemy. Yeah. The first poet that came to mind for me was someone like Billy Collins, who like often the reaction people have to his poetry is like, oh, this is like easy to read, easy to understand. It's like simple language, but it has an emotional impact. Are there poets that you turn to for like when you're thinking about voice and like how to structure a poem and the kind of language you're using that that really help you to like think about how to write specific poems? Yeah, currently I am just an acolyte of Creeley. Just the idea of word economy, word economy, word economy, like getting the most out of every line, every word. That is where I'm at in my poetic practice right now. Um, It's not where I've always been, but it's where I'm at right now. Yeah. I mean, I write fiction. So one thing I think a lot about is voice and um, trying to like embody people, not specific people I know, but experiences that I've seen and the language of people that I know. And like you said, hoping that someone might pick it up and be like, Oh, that's my voice. Like this is someone telling a story that's similar to my experience. Do you ever write poems from like other perspectives? Yeah. So I do through um, thinking about things like my maternal grandfather uh, from who was raised, born and raised in Kentucky. He, um, he picked tobacco till his hands literally bled um, or my grandfather, who was born in Canova, um, West Virginia, uh, he was blown up over the Pacific um, during World War II and became a really bad alcoholic as a result of it. So, yeah, I try to imbue those voices in some of my work for sure. What is it about grandfathers, I guess? Because a lot of my work, I often think about my grandfather when I'm right? writing my work. He was also a World War II vet. Um, spent most of his life in this little house out on this farm, um, drank a lot. And anyway, he, he's also like a fascinating figure in my mind, someone who I channel a lot in my work. 
I think as men too, it's about like kind of channeling that patrilineal or matro or like matrilineal that lineage, right? Yeah. To kind of understand how our parents were made. Yeah. And then if we can figure out how our parents were made, we can kind of figure out how we were made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I don't, I don't want to like assume anything about um, your upbringing or like what you're thinking about when you're writing your work. But for me, one thing I think about a lot is like masculinity and like toxic masculinity and some of these things that were so prevalent and normalized for me when I was growing up that now I think when I sit down to write, I'm often working through those things and trying to understand what made people the way they were and and some of these ideas that I probably inherited unknowingly. And and I guess in that sense, it's natural to think about our fathers, to think about our grandfathers and and what they went through and, and what made them the men that they were and, and what they passed down to us and how that affects our worldview. And then I'm a father. I have a seven-month-old daughter. So I also think about, you know, what I'm going to pass on to her, yeah. like how she's going to see, you know, me and her mom interact and how that is going to affect her. Um, so yeah, definitely thinking about uh, toxic masculinity, but also thinking about like this idea and this disconnect between getting mental health help. I am also from a working class background and growing up in the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, like mental health was never anything that was like a priority (laughs) in our household. It wasn't until much, much later that I was like, oh, I, I could use therapy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) sure. I remember the idea of like going to therapy being like a dig at someone, right? Like making fun of someone like, oh, you need therapy, right? (laughs) It was not something that was talked about like, something we all need from time to time, which is the truth. For sure. And so I think like through creative writing, that's like, like you were talking about, like how you process some of these things. Sure. Um, And I think like poetry is a great place to process trauma as well. Uh, The short form, um, but not just process trauma to really like dig in and think about like what happens after trauma. Mm -hmm. How do we grow from trauma? What does that look like? Do we feel it? Can we see it? I don't know. Yeah. So you had your daughter seven months ago during the MFA, I'm assuming. How did that (laughs) – I see your your eyes just got really wide when I said (laughs) – Yeah. Uh, How did you see that affecting your writing, suddenly being a father? Oh, so yeah, it was a total identity shift, right? Like, like going up to it, it's like an identity shift, like you're getting ready for it. Right. But like the day of, or, you know, uh, the events leading up to it, like we had a couple scares very like late in the pregnancy where we were like, oh shit, um, you know, this might not go the way that we were hoping that it goes. And yeah, just definitely having like your whole identity kind of uprooted yeah. Uh, fatherhood changes you. Yeah. <laughs> so, changes you for sure. Yeah. I have to assume that it also changes your perspective on some of that looking backwards at your lineage, looking at your parents, looking at your grandparents. I'm sure it changes that lens to have someone that you're looking after now. Definitely. Definitely. Um, thinking about things like uh, past communication models, right? <laughs> like all of those things, all of those things are in conversation. Um with some of the work that I'm doing now as well. 
So when did you start writing? Were you writing as a kid? Yeah. So I remember being like 12 or 13 and doing really shitty um, versions of like Blink-182 songs in like seventh grade. Um, you know, completely outside of my like wheelhouse of experience, but I was like, I can, I can write a chorus. I can write a book. <laughs> and then I took like a creative writing class in high school, which was really cool. That was more like fiction, which is, I don't write fiction now. I mean, I dabble, but I don't really write fiction now. Um, but then I started to really get into poetry at like, I don't know, 18, 20. Um, and what started me out was actually like hip hop and spoken word poetry. Yeah, I've told this anecdote on the podcast before, but, you know, growing up in that small town, I thought it was like the most boring place in the entire world. And then uh, after I went to college, it, I w- moved abroad for several years. And while I was abroad, I started thinking, oh, wow, that place I grew up is actually kind of interesting. So, so like, I'm curious if it was a s- similar experience for you. And at what point you started seeing your writing kind of galvanize around those themes of... Appalachia and queer identity. Yeah. Place is very central in my work. Um, so I grew up about 15 minutes away from downtown Cincinnati and lived about 15 minutes away from downtown Cincinnati, my pretty much whole life. So when you are that close to like an urban environment, but you're not in, you're not like in the city, but you're surrounded by it, it changes you and it affects you. And for me, what it did was it just put a magnifying glass on all of these structural inequality issues that I already had like a gut feeling like these are fucking shitty. But then when I started to write about it and when I started to research more about it um, and then when I started to get a little bit more into uh, like Appalachian migrants um, and then like how they've pretty much gotten a raw deal um for since they came to Cincinnati in like the mid fifties or so. Yeah. My, my work is definitely still involved with place, but now I live in a more like suburban area kind of removed from some of those like more um, urban issues, but I still find myself just keep coming back to it. And so that's how I think, you know, that like, you're on the right track. If even though you physically removed yourself from the space, but your mind still takes you there, I think there's something to that that you should listen to. Yeah, that's definitely what the experience was like for me. I was like, finally, I'm out of that place. I was like, nope, only physically. (laughs) Mentally, I'm still there. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about those people. I'm trying to process it and make sense of it. And writing turned into this way to do that because I'm sure... Most writers will agree with this. You can think through things for a long time, but putting the words down on paper has a way of clarifying it that, at least for me personally, I I could work through it for days in my head or even talking to someone, but putting the words down on paper um, really crystallizes things for me in a different way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, seeing it like outside of your head and then like seeing it in like a way that's like kind of organized where it's not like, you know, kind of a jumble. Right. Um, I think that clarity comes through writing stuff down. And you said you don't write fiction, but with poetry, you know, you have that option to embody other characters, right? So for me personally, writing fiction allows me to get close to those things that I'm processing, but also keep them at arm's length a little bit, which makes it in some ways easier to process it. Yeah. I think with poetry, 
you leave a little bit of yourself behind, um, especially with some of like the processing of it. Not every poet is like that. Uh, I think it depends on if you are really dealing with voice. Um, that gives you a little bit of distance. But for me, yeah, like I'm at the point now where I'll pretty much say anything. <laughs> um, like I'm not, I'm not afraid. Not being afraid means sometimes you do leave some of yourself behind on the page. Well, let's talk about two cardinals. One of the things I really loved about that poem is that it sort of encapsulates the way the mind works. The speaker is wandering around town, noticing random things like trees and birds and shoes. But he also has these fleeting thoughts and memories mixed up with all of that noticing. It's a really cool snapshot of how this character sees and experiences the world. What was your process like for writing that poem? Okay, so my, my, I think my daughter was a week old. And so I was just treating myself to a walk around one of my favorite nature preserves. And it was um, probably early, like right before spring. So you're in that like liminal in between kind of space where the ground's still a little frosty, but it's still cold and it's very rainy because we're in Ohio and it's like very muddy. And so, yeah, it just kind of came from noticing and allowing myself, my, allowing my mind to wander and kind of leaning into that stream of consciousness style um, to an absurd degree in some points for sure. I imagine having a newborn daughter is its own liminal space, huh? Absolutely, right? Because you're you're very much like in between, and especially like thinking about the liminal space that she is. Yeah. Right. Um, can't quite talk yet. Right. Can't quite walk. Can kind of crawl ish. Um, but is still very much just like a sponge, kind of like absorbing everything and like being able to watch her you know, change has just been, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> you also told me before the interview that in interdisciplinarity plays an important role in your writing. Tell us what you mean by that and how it affects your writing process. So what I mean by that is as a poet, I can put on any hat I want. I can be a historian one day. I can be a sociologist one day. I can be a philosopher. I can be a fiction writer if I really want to. So having that kind of freedom of creative obsession means I'm not bound by anything but my own imagination, whatever the fuck I'm digging that day. You're working on a manuscript of poems right now entitled Debridement. How have you seen those things uh, manifesting in that work? With Debridement, I'm very interested in the processing of trauma. Um, and I am looking at it through the lens of mycology. Um, so speaking of creative obsessions, mycology is one of them for me. Um, and I'm interested in the way fungi transform their environment through the decomposition process, but through also, uh, like symbiosis mutualisms to kind of get rid of the, the dead stuff to let the, to let other stuff grow. And then also I'm very interested in, mycology in terms of the mushroom as a symbol for queer identity. Um, you know, like not quite a plant, not quite an animal, just somewhere like right in between. So like the mushroom like lives in that liminal space is kind of like a totem for that liminal space. 
Um, a third way that mycology informs my work is through understanding and thinking about the mycelial network, um, the threading. I like the I like to use the idea of the threading in um, the form of my poems. Very short lines, um, lots of white space that allows the reader to make those connections between ideas and between topics potentially. Before the MFA, you worked for some time in the corporate world as a financial proofreader. What was that experience like? What did you learn from it? And did it play any role in your decision to pursue the MFA? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, Working in corporate, you realize really quickly what you're willing to do for money and what you're not willing to do for money. It was during the pandemic that I got that job and I did it for 40 hours a week, uh, pouring over financial um, financial statements um, and just looking for the the smallest grammatical error, the smallest stylistic difference. What it did was it trained my eye to be very detail oriented. um, So it leaned on those strengths already. But what it also demonstrated to me was that I can't, um, I can't create in that kind of environment. I can't, that's not the kind of artist I am. Uh, the kind of artist I am is one who, um, likes to be involved in, um, academia in like literary theory in thinking about also my own volunteering, like my own volunteer work as like an Appalachian activist. And I just felt like doing that 40 hours a week, I didn't have the time to read. I didn't have the time to write. I didn't have the time to do anything except for just do that. It made reading not fun. And as a person who read the dictionary at nine years old, that's not a good fit for me. It's just (laughs) not. How important is it to figure out the headspace that you need as an artist to create your work? I think everybody's different, you know? Um, I mean, I've talked to people who are like, you know, this like writing every day thing, like that's not, that's for the birds. People don't actually do that. Or like I've talked to people who who are like, you know, I have to wait for the right inspiration and stuff. And I'm lucky in that I just feel like inspiration is everything, like living and breathing and experiencing the world um, is inspiration for me. And that's probably because my poetry is so place-based even if it's not trying to be all the time, it's still very place-based. How important is it to stay close to that place, close to home, that you're still living in Ohio? How important is that to your work, you think? I think it's pretty important to my work. I think it's more important to my work to be that close to my family, um, to be that close to my support system. I think that's important to my work. Being physically in Ohio is something that is just a given for me in this juncture in my life. Like um, I'm rooted, I'm rooted. And like, I can't really do much about being rooted, but what I can do is I can dig in deeper. All right. Well, let's talk about where you dug in the MFA program at Miami university in Oxford, Ohio. There's not a ton of information on the website. So please correct me if anything I say is wrong, but best I can tell it's a two year fully funded program with concentrations in fiction and poetry, though they also offer classes in creative nonfiction, multimedia and performance writing. Does that all sound accurate? Yeah, there is a full, there is a um, creative nonfiction track. That's fantastic. Good to know. 
Um, so nonfiction, fiction, and poetry tracks in the program. Besides being in your home state of Ohio, besides being rooted, what drew you to this program? The fact that it was fully funded. Um, I went to undergrad at Miami University, so I already had a very like good working relationship with people who were already my mentors in undergrad, but then in grad school, now they are, now one is like my thesis director. Um, and so having that continuation of mentorship um, was important for me. And then also I knew that the cohort would be really special. And I was dead on with that, you know, half are local, local people like me. Right. But then the other half are international. So, so many different perspectives um, in uh, an 11 person poetry workshop all over the world and all over the spectrum of identity as well. It's been very special and very amazing. Well, the website describes the program as small, intensive, and supportive, merging a playful approach to contemporary experimentation with an ambitious exploration of literary traditions. Let's start with the first part about being small. You just mentioned that the workshops have about 11 people in them. How many students are in each cohort in the program as a whole? Okay, so in the creative writing part of it, maybe there are a dozen of us, maybe a little more, maybe 12 to 15 um, and that's spread out between fiction, nonfiction, and um, poetry. There's not a lot of cross-pollination within the workshop. Um, poets are with poets. CNF is with CNF and fiction is with fiction. But I think like, so my first year I was in class with a bunch of second, like with second years, right? And then when the second years left, now I'm a second year and I'm in class with first years. So you get like a good revolving experience of different uh, people who are there for the same reason you are, because they get to wake up every day and do what they love. So 12 to 15 students per cohort. So are we looking at somewhere around 25 to 30 in the program at any one time? Yeah, that sounds about right. About 25 to 30 uh, creative writing um, MFAs. And do you feel like the size is allowed for an intensive and supportive environment, as the website says? I definitely think so. I think that um, throughout just the program um, on my end, I've been able to produce about 80-ish pages of new poems, which is which is nuts to think about, honestly. <laughs> um, and by the time I'm done in May, I'll probably be a little north of 100. I'll probably cut about, you know, lots of that. And we'll probably be sitting at something like 65 or 70, but that's manuscript length. And that's enough to uh, go after residencies and go after um, different contests. And yeah, that's enough to get a good foot in the door in the creative writing ecosystem. So you talk about working on that manuscript. I assume that manuscript is your thesis for people who don't know Tell us about the process of putting together a thesis committee and what it's been like working with your committee on this project. So um, I have a chair and my chair is pretty much like my go-to person. So my chair is the person who, um, you know, I sent my rationale to. And my rationale is basically where you justify what your manuscript is going to be about. It's not very long. I think it's like two-ish pages or something. And then your reading list is attached to that rationale. And so um, your point person for your rationale is going to be your chair. Um, and then you'll have a second and a third reader 
My second reader uh, was one of my poetry professors at Miami um, when I was an undergrad, Chris Cheek, uh, who's a British poet who's brilliant. Um, and then my third reader, uh, because I had to be different, is one of the preeminent mycology scholars in the world, Nick Money, Professor Nick Money, um, who has kind of been, well, he kind of just held my hand through uh, like the process of me being like, I, I'm a creative writing major, but I want to write about mushrooms. How do I write, how do I write about mushrooms and not sound like a dummy? And so he was very um, generous with his time and met with me and was like, oh, maybe you want to, you know, uh, reconsider this, or maybe you want to think about this a little more. Yeah. I think identifying who you want to work with is important, but you don't have to do it right away. It's not anything. I think like what they say is like the first, the first semester of your second year, um, is when you should kind of have that unlock. I'm a sweaty, sweaty, try hard. And I like knew what I wanted to do in my second semester. Of my first year. <laughs> and I had my committee all lined up and I like reached out to the grad director and I was like, I want to work with somebody who's not in creative writing. Is that okay? Um, and it was, and it is. You mentioned that reading list. I want to hear you talk about that because this, these kind of things are always a little bit different from MFA program to MFA program, how you choose a committee, the things that go into um, those thesis hours. So that reading list, was that something that you put together? The, like, these are the books that I'm going to read and they're going to inform my thesis? Or was that just a list of like everything you had read while in the MFA? So you put together a reading list of about 10 to 15 things and 10 to 15 books, mm -hmm. right? If you're going to do articles, then it's a little bit more, um, more articles, right? But 10 to 15 books. And then your thesis committee is good usually about like guiding you towards, oh, you're checking out this, you should check this out. Um, and as long as you're open to that, you can build out a pretty, a pretty, you know, substantial reading list, um, and so the things on my list are like, I have one of them with me. Um, it's called Beyond Shame, Reclaiming the Abandoned History of Radical Gay Sexuality. Um, so thinking about um, some scholarship surrounding shame, which uh, as I um, started to dive a little bit more into the topic was something that I really wanted to think about in terms of my own processing of shame and how I see it in, in like influence my work. And then like other things are like contemporary poetry. I said like, I am definitely an acolyte of Creeley. Um, so the collected Creeley is on there. Um, but then also contemporary gay poets like Chen Chen, Richard Blanco, who's wonderful. And then also some things um, that I identify with activism, like Muriel Rickheiser's The Book of the Dead, which documents the Hawk's Nest disaster, one of the largest industrial disasters that has ever befallen the American worker. Honestly, uh, it's when a um, when a mining collapse happened in West Virginia, and Rickheiser was there, documentarian style, getting getting you know going right to the source and finding out like what these people were struggling with. And so, like, as, like, a guiding light, I always think about Ruckeiser, and I always think about the Book of the Dead. Yeah, I love that idea of putting together a list like that and running it by your committee so that they can be like, okay, these are great, but you should also think about these other things, right? 
Oh, I do have an example of something that did not did not cut it. So I wanted to over the summer. I was like, I want to think about vampires. Um, <laughs> I want to make poems about vampires. But then my chair was like, if you're including, you know, stuff about vampires in your rationale, then you're going to have to do a lot of extra reading about the vampire as a queer trope. And, you know, there's a lot of literature and a lot of scholarship that has been done on this. Having that clarification, I removed everything about vampires. <laughs> you were like, I'm just sticking with mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, I mean, I'm already... I'm already stretched. You're stretched a little thin in an MFA program anyway. Um, so anywhere where you can make smart cuts, I think makes sense. According to the website, the program's core consists of four practice oriented workshops. I see this word over and over on the website, practice, experimentation. Is that something that showed up for you a lot in the program? Did you feel like it was practice oriented and experimentation oriented? Yes. Okay. So for me, for my own personal experience, uh, in my first semester, it was all about play. It was all about just like throwing shit against the wall and seeing if anything sticks. Uh, spoiler alert, not so much, not, not too <laughs> much, you know, but what you do is you kind of get a feel for, um, well, these are the forms that I like to play in. Uh, this is the kind of subject matter I want to play in. This is the kind of art that I want to make. And then in the second semester, um, it was more of a like prose poem based workshop, which was really interesting for me because I don't really write a lot of prose poems. Um, so it was something that like kind of stretched me a little bit. And now in this, my third workshop, we're required to produce work every single week, not just produce work, but we like workshop work every single week. So the semesters are 15 weeks. So that's potentially... Um, a 15 different poems from my manuscript that I get to workshop, which is completely invaluable and definitely uh, an, an amazing experience. Um, and then next semester, which will be my final semester, um, that one will also be very like creating new work, but then also thinking about uh, ordering the manuscript, but also like going back through some of the poems and seeing, um, you know, what's clicking with the workshop, what's not clicking with the workshop, and then making decisions based on that. Potentially, right? Potentially. Right. I imagine like being pushed to produce that many poems in a semester, that probably fosters experimentation and practice, right? You can't try to be too perfect. You're just like, okay, I need to write a poem. Let's try something and and then put it out there and see what see if it sticks. Definitely. And so I do get into this trap though. Like I'm like, oh, I need to be producing like the best work, you know, because I'm comp like, I'm not competing, but like all of these other people are producing their best work. So like I need to, you know, be doing the same. Um, as the weeks go on though, I'm starting to get a little less like the semester's almost over. Maybe I can just, maybe I can just put out like one or two that I'm not a hundred percent sure on, but like, you know, we'll see. I'm, it's not like I wanted to put out anything that was like definitely unfinished, but you know, like a B side potentially, potentially just as just test the waters. It can be good to let go. I think, you know, in its purest form, the workshop is for practice, right? It's for 
sharing drafts of stories, but I think it's, you can in MFA programs and the workshop environment get kind of sucked into that feeling of like, Oh, I, like these people are really talented and they're going to read my work. It has to be perfect, you know? And if you let that anxiety creep in, it, it might in the end be detrimental to your progress as a writer, I think. Yeah, I think you're right on about that. That's why I don't know. I don't just rely on the workshop to um, workshop my stuff. Yeah. I I do parallel workshops as well, um, located in Cincinnati, located in Ohio. Um, you know, wherever I can, wherever I can find one. There's little there's little groups of poets all over the place. Um, you just have to look. And it's important to find those people that you trust that you can show work to, and um, and having different sets of eyes on it is always a good thing. So. As I mentioned, the program is fully funded with every admitted MFA student receiving a graduate assistantship that, according to the website, pays about $17,500 a year in exchange students teach. What is the workload like as a graduate assistant? How many classes are you teaching each year, each semester? Okay, so my first semester, it was one. My second semester, it was one. This semester, it's two. Uh, and all of these have been English comp. And then next semester, it'll be one section of creative writing. Okay. So one semester of the MFA program, you teach two sections, but otherwise you're just teaching one section each semester. Correct. Yep. How's that workload been for you as far as your um, creative work goes? Um, so, okay. The first semester was a little rocky uh, because I'd never taught before. Sure. Um, the second semester, uh, also a little rocky because uh, my wife was pregnant and we were getting ready to welcome my daughter into the world. Um, this semester, not as much. You know, I feel like I kind of know what I'm doing. I know what to expect from my students. And as long as I just lead with uh, respect and understanding, um, I think that they are receptive to that. You know, they all lived through a pandemic when they were in high school. And so I really think about English comp as like, not just like, here's how you write an academic essay, but here's how you college, here's how you, how you figure it out. You know, uh, here are your resources. If nobody's told you about your resources here, here they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good message for anyone listening. Who's going to be teaching comp in one of these programs. That was a realization I had pretty early on. It was like, Oh, this class might be the first college class these students have had. And so it's partially my responsibility to be there for them, not just helping with English, but helping them with all of these new things they're dealing with all of a sudden. Yeah, it's like a life skills almost. (laughs) Which can be a lot of fun. It's really fun because you get a chance to really get to know the students on a different level, even if the material might not be the dream material we want to teach. (laughs) Oh, goodness. But there are ways that you can you can fashion it towards still like being in your wheelhouse of your own research interests. Um, Like I'm really interested in like the rhetorics of making. So I'm able to uh, fashion the final project as something that doesn't, it's not just like make a video. It's like make a like physical object or a physical construction that is still, you know, um, that still fulfills like the parameters of the assignment, which is turning a research paper, turning the audience from me to a different audience uh, of one of the stakeholders that you consider in your paper. But instead of making a video, I have you make a like object or like a painting or something. 
And I've gotten some pretty cool projects out of it. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? I didn't realize the amount of opportunity that was going to be at my fingertips. And I didn't realize that that meant I need to say no to things sometimes. Yeah, sure. Um, And so the older I get, the more I just want to say no to things, Um, which I think is good. Don't say yes to everything. Just say yes to the important things. Good advice. Matt, thanks so much for stopping in and talking to me. This has been a blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jared. This has been really, really fun. 